0: Welcome back to AQ's Blog and Grill, a podcast dedicated to bringing you stories of innovation and insights in the branding and marketing space. Sprinkle in a dash of entrepreneurship and startup life, and you've got food for thought. Whether you want to define your new startup brand, discover how to turn your hobby into a successful business, or hone your content creation skills, you're sure to leave each week with a full stomach or mind. Now here's your host, Alan Quarry.
1: AQ's Blog and Grill. Hey everybody and welcome to AQ's Blog & Grill. We're excited today to have Randy Frisch with us. Randy is the CMO and co-founder of Uberflip, which is a content experience platform that empowers marketers to create content experiences at every stage of the buyer's journey. We all know how important that is. And one of the things we're gonna come back to Randy quite a bit on is the difference between content marketing and content experience. Randy has a ha, has a book out. He published it last year, and uh, for those faint of heart, uh, it, it is called "Fuck Content Marketing." We will refer to it from here on in as maybe "F Content Marketing." Is that okay, Randy? Yeah,
2: I, I can I can live with various <laughs> versions as I've had to on some podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I think the cu- the cutest one that's been thrown my way is "Flip Content Marketing," given that <laughs> I started a company called uh, Uberflip, but Uber uh, Exactly. But anything you want is okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, it's a fascinating book. And I think one of the um, kind of the, the topping uh, on this, uh, this Sunday, uh, if you will, of Randy's book was, it was named one of the 10 top business books uh, by which magazine was that again, Randy? Was it fortune? Was it Forbes? One of those big.
2: Yeah. Another one of those efforts. Right. (laughs) (laughs)
1: so anyway congratulations on that i was uh i was delighted first of all to see you take a project like that on uh because you're you know kind of young and uh the second thing and you've got three kids uh and the second thing was is that why shouldn't you uh because the content and the context of that book is just what people need to read so welcome randy frisch
2: Thanks so much, Alan. Uh, no, absolutely. I, to be honest, I, I never thought I'd be an author, or write a book. It mm-hmm. wasn't one of those things I was craving to do. The funny thing, you know, for those who have read the book or choose to get past the intro, is I set context that I actually wrote, I, I guess, a blog post that eventually turned into the book and when I wrote that blog post, it had the same semi-offensive title to some people, uh-huh. and my own team just wouldn't let me publish it for months. They were just like, "You are gonna offend everyone we've ever sold to and try and sell to," and and I was like, "Get beyond the headline. You know, read the read the read the blog post. Tell me what you think." And yeah. you know, lo and behold, it became a, a book with you know pretty good following. So It's been exciting.
1: Yeah. A bestseller. And uh, come on, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, and it's gotta be good. Um, I mean, you and, and uh, Yoif, uh, set this thing up in 2012. Is that right?
2: Yeah. That's when we started Uberflip. The two of us had been working together for a couple of years already. We're, we're actually going on our 10 year work anniversary mm. uh, on a previous venture that he started. And then, uh, you know, we, I, I guess, we had a bigger idea, which which eventually became Uberflip. So, ten years, uh, we still like each other. So it's, it's a good <laughs> win.
1: That is good. I mean, co-founders sometimes turn out to be co-flounders, um, and the business suffers because the the originals aren't getting along or have lost the string of why it is they were doing this in the first place. So
0: Absolutely. let's get in.
1: Let's get into the book for a little bit here. Um, you're really saying F content marketing, but focus on content experience. So what led you to that position? What What's the reason for that thesis uh, coming about?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. And, you know, to, to be really clear, this isn't a book that suggests that we shouldn't create content. It isn't a book. You know, there's a lot of people who have gotten a job title, which is content marketer. It doesn't suggest that they don't have value. It's one of, you know, the, the F, if you will, is more the idea. Well, what's the point of doing it if we're not going to leverage it, right? You right. know, it's 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 that feeling we get with so much of what we do, of what we take on, where we're yeah, you know, we kind of all say to ourselves, well, f this, uh, if you know, if no one's going to care about it, if no one's going to put it to use, all that effort, and we can think of so many different things that we do. In our personal daily life, for our family, for our friends, you know, of course in work. And that's often very much the case with content, which is we get stuck in this mindset where we say, well, we just have to create more content. You know, we need three blog posts this week, or when's the last ebook that was created? And before you know it, we find that we have this huge mass of content. And and as we get through this book, uh, you know, I, I unpack the, the reality, which is some of that has to do with overburdening the content marketer with an Mm -hmm. expectation that they're going to take that content and actually get it into the hands of our buyers of our customers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a bit of a, we're we're kind of expecting too much of the content marketer. Remember they are, and and I love content marketers, especially good ones who can write great copy, who can Mm -hmm. tell a story, can build in our product messaging. That's a real skill. But, we, but a lot of them, you know, think of, about some of the people you probably even have over at the team at Quarry. You know, the great content creators, you know, they may have been a journalist before or they mm-hmm. may have been a editor at a magazine or something of the sort. And they never had to figure out how to get people to actually buy the magazine, right? right. Or, or buy the newspaper or get it onto the shelves in the store. They had a very specific job. And I think what we... You know, what I'm seeing more these days is that the companies that are doing a really good job with content, not content marketing, but with content, mm-hmm. they start to realize that the real owner of content is often someone in the demand team, perhaps the digital marketer on the in the organization. And in some some companies, it's actually the sales reps who have to mm. take that content and start to contextualize it to the buyer.
1: Right. That's that's such an excellent point. And I'm I'm that was one of the things that drew me to the book last year was um, finally we're, we're going to have somebody remind us as content marketers that if it doesn't sell, it isn't working, um, or if it doesn't influence, it's not working. So put yourself in, in uh, the place on a buyer's journey and anticipate what they are going to want, uh, not what you want to say but what they're going to want to know in order to make a decision. So I, I think that's a great stream through, uh, through the book.
2: Absolutely. And, and Alan, I, I love how you hit on the buyer's journey there because I think too often as we just unpack, like we don't think of content tied to the buyer journey. We think, of content. And it's almost gone a bad rap at times for some of the right reasons. It's mm-hmm. this inbound thing that's magically going to deliver people to the top of our funnel. And then as Gosh. long as it's there, we're done. And like, you know, someone read the the white paper, so they're going to buy next, right? Mm. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, I think where the demand marketer often thinks and when i say demand marketer it could be the abn marketer today account-based mm-hmm. marketer it could be also people on your social team it could be the email uh, automation expert on your team mm-hmm. all of these people they're sitting there and when you think about what they're doing on a daily basis they are trying to optimize channels right yes. good and when i say channels i'm talking about you know the the money we put to paid The money we put to, you know, social distribution, Mm -hmm. the the webinars that we run, the emails that we send through our Marketo or Mm -hmm. Aliqua or whatever we may be using, the direct mail plays that we're doing now. Those are all the, and and we can go on, the the list isn't actually that extensive, but what marketers like to always do is we'd like to say, okay, I'm going to focus on this channel and I'm going to optimize this channel. Let's say it was paid ads, like retargeted Mm -hmm. ads. And we put everything into thinking about how do we get someone to click on that ad a little bit better? But what we ignore is that regardless of what channel we're hot on, we're always going to send someone to a destination,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
2: The idea is click here. Like, that's what we ask people, click here. (laughs) And when they do, instead of celebrating at that point, we've got to think about, okay, well, then what, right? And that is that to me is what content experience is about. It is, mm-hmm. how do we actually bundle up the right assets so that people have that experience that gets them to stick around longer so that we don't have to spend as much to acquire customers?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you point out in the book that sometimes you would find, you would click on a link, and you'd get somewhere, and then, okay, now what do I do? Right. I'm here, but I I don't know where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to see, and, and that's a loss. That's just... As, and again, as you point out in the in the book, it's not so much that there's a lot of bad content. There's just a lot of bad content experience that uh, that marketers haven't thought about that.
2: Yeah. Well, let's let's take the one that you just gave, Alan, as an example, right? Like we we get these all the time. We get an email, either it's coming from a sales rep or you know we get an email from some sort of nurture campaign that comes out oh, yeah. to us. And, and again, the ask is click here, and we do. And perhaps we even like that asset. I was on a plane a few weeks ago, and I was I was actually downloading an asset, uh, you know, from a from a blog. Uh, or it was an offer that I was interested in. Basically, it was this thought leadership piece from an analyst. And when once I got there, I was like, "This was great," but then there was nowhere to go next. Like they mm. weren't offering me that next piece. And I was ready to continue my research in that moment. In fact, the latest stats I've seen from Gartner is 82% of the time that we're buying, we're doing research, right? Right. That means only 18% of the time we're actually speaking to the sales rep, 82% of the time we're doing research. So we think about that and we think about it just mathematically, right? If I want to earn for my, like I'm a CMO, right? So I want to earn more time for my sales rep on that call. And they only have 18%. So if I want, and if there's going to be, say, two or three vendors, at least three, then I simply need to get them at least 9% of that time on on the call during the buyer journey. So to do that, I have to earn at least 50% of the research time, 41%, if you will. The best way to do that is to make sure that after they click on that link, and after they click to say, okay, I want to get this asset, that they don't go back to Google to find some other piece of research. So the idea here is how do we contain someone? And if if people are having trouble understanding this, think no no, no further than the experience you get on something like Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. We open up Netflix, and these days they even email us, right? Like, yes. I don't know if you get those emails. Like, now now they're like, we got to get you to our content. They've gone yeah. beyond just assuming you're going to log into Netflix because oh, we have so much choice between Hulu and Netflix and Disney+. Plus. So Netflix is sending me an email. They're like, I want you to click here. And then once I actually click there, they don't count on me loving that first video that they're going to tease. They've got six or seven more options, but it's a finite number, right? Netflix has tens of thousands of pieces of content, but they've distilled it down to the assets they think I'm going to want. That's the experience we have to
1: emulate as marketers. Right. And you, you spend uh, some time and, and, and justifiably on Spotify and how they're starting, how they did start in 2014-15, in, uh, to anticipate <clears throat> what Randy's going to want to listen to as opposed to what Alan wants to listen to. And all of those suggestions uh, sort of guide you when it's not just, okay, this is what you might be interested in, it's six other people, or people like you also chose this type of uh, content or this type of music, um, I mean, it's brilliant because, frankly, I'm tired of making choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, the the, the willingness
2: to make a decision is. Something I don't have time for anymore. <laughs> and uh, I think you know what we're really talking about here when we talk about Netflix, when we talk about Spotify, when we talk about marketing is the expectation for things to be personalized for us, mm. right? Mm-hmm. We want, you know, there's all these debates over privacy. Yes, people don't want their privacy invaded, but they do want things personalized for them. And I think right. the concern is, what are we doing with that data? Are we are we taking that data and are we turning around and providing value? And if we can provide value, then people will let you track them all day long, right? right? Like none of us open up Netflix and say, oh my God, I can't believe they're tracking what I'm watching right now. <laughs> We're like, track every second because I don't want to be suggested to get any show that I don't want to see. Like, right. show me what I want in that moment. And that's, yeah. that's the same thing that we say as a marketer, right? Like when you, know, when you go to a, a website to buy a product for the very first time, wouldn't it be nice if they knew what geography you were in, right. what business line you were in, all the different details that that make up your decision, your buying decision, and right. that's what we have to be able to do. So I think what we're going to start to see more. You know, I mean, we're we're at 2020 now, so it's you know now is the time. Is the ability to take all this data that we've we've gathered, right? right. And and as B two B marketers, a lot of us think that that. Data lives in marketing automation platforms. Uh, it does, but it lives in other systems too. It lives on our our history on the web. I've been spending a lot of time talking to some of the big uh, Martech uh, providers in, mm-hmm. in the last number of months. The big word that I'm hearing from them is CDP. Right, it's like this new buzzword, customer yeah. da- data platform, uh, mm-hmm. and and it's really that next evolution, which is saying we're not going to just track the touches of all these emails we're sending. We're going to track the touches of every single point that you're taking across the journey. Mm-hmm. And as we as we gave gather that data, the next step is how do we bring that back and how do we predict what content to serve up to you next, right? right. How do we know that because you liked Guns and Roses 20 years ago, you're going to like whatever's next on Spotify, right? Like how do we how do we figure out those correlations? Because if we can do that, we can move you from one asset to the next
1: right yeah i'm really looking forward to randy um a time where you and i can and sit back and congratulate each other on understanding that it's not about data it's about knowledge and as you process data you actually gain some knowledge over what randy may like or what i might like or what your son uh coming back from the hockey tournament might want uh, because they won and he wanted to keep the uh you know, the energy high uh, with his playlist. They actually are showing us then some respect as customers by saying, hey, Randy, we know. Hey, Alan, we uh, we know. We have a relationship. It's not just data. Absolutely.
2: And, and I think the best example of that that I see these days, and I laugh at it sometimes, is if you remember 10 years ago, if one of these big companies sent you or I an email and it started off simply with saying, hi, Alan, how are you? We'd be like, holy shit. How did they get my, how did they get my first name? That is so cool that this big giant corporation got my first name. Now, when we get that email, 10 years present, yeah. uh, we say, how the fuck did they get my email? Like, Get me <laughs> off of this list. Yeah, And and it's so amazing to me how quickly that shifted from, you know, amazement to expectation. Mm-hmm. Now where we're going to next is we expect them to know exactly what meat should be in there. Like, don't right. tell me, you know, my name and then deliver me some generic garbage that mm-hmm. shows that, you know, nothing about my challenges, my industry. And that's what we have to start to do. The challenge right. that I think a lot of marketers are up against and, you know, there's some buzzwords out there that that kind of make it easy for marketers, but, you know, those who, who see through this will know what I'm talking about. There's terms like multi-touch attribution, right? Mm-hmm. Great buzzword, which basically means what are the various different touches across that buyer journey? And a lot of the case studies I end up seeing talk about, you know, ways to justify every touch point. So what we're doing is we're saying, well, I'm just going to throw everything at this buyer. And through that, They'll eventually not be able to ignore me. And and what that means for those who understand some of these business metrics Mm -hmm. is our customer acquisition cost goes way up.
0: Mm -hmm. Our
2: time to purchase is quite elongated versus what it may need to be because Mm -hmm. we're trying to get everything in front of them. If we knew, as you said, if we had the knowledge to say these are the 10 assets that they need to see. And how do I get them to just see these 10 pieces? And in fact, back to our point, how do I not send them to a dead end after right. the first link? Well, then maybe I can get them not to require 10 touch points for those 10 assets. Maybe I, I can do it not necessarily in one. I mean, that's the holy grail. And uh-huh. everyone would get you know their job and you know, big raises if that was the case. But maybe I could reduce 10 touch points to six yeah right? maybe i could and and what's the cost of one touch point i mean i i again i'm cmo here i signed a demand campaign for a small segment the other day fifty thousand dollars right every time i sign one of those like my heart <laughs> like beats a little bit i'm like ah oh. if i could uh-huh. know that i could i could signed four times fifty thousand dollars for a small segment less in the coming quarter that's a huge saving for my organization. And that's, and I'm likely getting, you know, my back padded quite a few times.
1: (laughs) Well, it is about effectiveness and, and we have to keep churning uh, that data into knowledge as we just talked about. And then finally into understanding that how to leverage that knowledge into helping a person get what they want. Um, it's not necessarily selling stuff. I think it's buying stuff where they want to buy stuff. And, you know, we've got it. Our clients have got it. Randy, tell me a little bit about inbound and, and what you're thinking on, uh, you know, uh, people like HubSpot that have basically changed the landscape um, by saying we love marketing, but we don't love old marketing. Um <laughs> Uh, what has that done in terms of demand generation and uh, ABM?
2: All right, so I'll, I'll start by complimenting HubSpot because, okay. but I, but I will be a little controversial here. Okay, uh, but I, I think HubSpot's an amazing company. I, I got to know some of the the execs who started the company in the early uh-huh. days. Still in touch with some of them, uh, and, or many of them actually. Uh, and you know, amazing what they've been able to do for so many businesses. Uh, especially small businesses that don't always okay. have that ability to have a large team, but can be quite sophisticated now with that suite of, of solutions that they offer. Right. I am willing to bet you, and I don't know if anyone at HubSpot would actually admit this or if they have, but that if, that as much as they, they probably wouldn't be here today with coin without coining that term inbound and making it as big of a deal as it is that sometimes okay. it's kind of like, Oh, do we really have to like live by that inbound term? And <laughs> and I, And I think that's because, you know, this idea of inbound marketing was not necessarily new, but it was a better way to frame it. No mm-hmm. different than today. ABM, you talk to, you know, marketers who've been, you know, personalizing and going after accounts one-to-one they're like, ABM isn't new. It's just right. a better way to talk about it and and relate to it. Yeah. And, and I kind of predicted this, I, th- I think it was six, seven years ago, maybe more seven, eight years ago. Uh. And, and I remember that for a short bit I was hiring, you know, pretty entry-level marketers and they all wanted the job title inbound marketing manager, right? right. Like that was the job title that they want. They wanted to be an inbound marketing manager. Right. And I was like, all right, whatever you want. Like it's entry-level child. that's the title you want, go for it. Right. Now no one wants that title, right? Everyone wants to be an ABM marketing, you know, specialist, whatever the title might be. And, uh-huh. and, I, and I think that it's, it's a bit of the, you know, the flavor of the month, if you will. It's this mindset that I want to be doing what's cool and what's hip. Ultimately, what we have to do as marketers is deliver a great experience to our customers, mm-hmm. to yep. our buyers. If we can nail that experience, it doesn't really, we can't isolate to say, well, I only want to worry about top of the funnel, which in many ways is what inbound is all about. Mm-hmm. Because if if we generate a ton of leads or even MQLs, But then we stall there. It doesn't matter. Right. Right. We need to be thinking about that entire journey. And I think, you know, the the marketers I I respect often the most, you look at their job titles, it's just like marketing manager. right? (laughs) (laughs) Or or, or more senior, it's like VP (laughs) marketing. Like, you know, I, you know, give me a challenge and I will figure out whether we need to focus on top of the funnel, middle of bottom, you know, do we have to focus on our customer marketing right now uh, because we've got a great engine that's running. So I, you know, back to your question on HubSpot, I think that they did an amazing job at highlighting the value of content, Mm -hmm. but even their suite has brought in so much to offer everything from inbound tools to outbound tools at this stage Mm -hmm. that that they can't necessarily, you know, put like this big X around the outbound sales call anymore when they have a CRM product.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's, um, it is fun to, to watch, uh, to watch Brian and uh, Dharmesh, uh, you know, find their way, uh, which right now is, is kind of a gold, golden highway um,
2: absolutely it's an what? amazing amazing company and really yeah. br- really bright people even even beyond brian and Darmesh,
1: yeah
2: you know who you know i mean mike volpe is no longer there but you yeah. know really yeah. talented guy running running lola now and mm-hmm. you know mark roberge Rab- Rab- mm-hmm. back in the day and yeah. you know, some really talented people there not just yeah. at the exact level
1: yeah yeah i guess roberge is teaching at uh, harvard now yeah I, uh, yeah I saw that yeah he's gone the academic route which is great
2: <laughs> yeah, I saw him on a panel recently, about a year ago. Uh,
1: okay, so you talk in the book about people process and technology as a framework, and maybe that's a little outdated now because then you 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 go to uh, the content experience framework, which really takes up the I would say the last half of the book, which is about the difference uh, that can be created if you think differently. And then you execute differently. If you're just if you're going to execute differently without thinking about this being a new game or a new frontier, eh, you're probably going to miss the mark. But you've set it out, I think, so well with the uh, the process of of centralizing content, organizing content, uh, personalizing the, those experiences that come uh, along, distributing the content, and then generating results. So. How did that evolve? How did how did you catch on to that that thinking? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. First
2: of all, I'll, I'll come back to the people, process, tech piece, and then mm-hmm. we'll, we'll hit on the, the content experience framework. I, I think the problem, that is an old framework, but I still love it because mm-hmm. I think it's a very simple way to look at, you know, tackling challenges and do you have all the right check marks? I think the problem for a lot of marketers, and I've been guilty of this myself, I'm not, I'm not like, you know suggesting I'm all, all perfect, but is is we often rush to technology is the answer. We yeah. say, okay, great. Like I got to figure out ABM. Let me go buy some ABM tech. And, 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 and we, we say, well, there's this people process technology piece. The first thing that you always need, I say the first in that in those three is the people, you know, right. like good people are the key to any successful company. Right. Then you need a process. When you put that process in place, and, and you start to see efficiencies with it, but it's starting to break, that's when you need the tech usually, right? right? Like, you know, the tech is to take that process that you've got and take it to that next level. Right. So with that, you know, with setting that stage, the content experience framework for me was a way to have conversations with marketers as I usually do about yeah. what to do in terms of your go-to-market strategy with content. Uh-huh. And, right. and I think the problem that you that we've, we kind of unpacked already, Alan, at the beginning right. is, you know, a lot of people think, well, my strategy with content just has to be really good content creators and a good workflow. I probably Mm -hmm. need like content marketing software, like, you know, great companies. Don't get me wrong. Like Mm Capost does a great job at that. You know, NewsCred does some good work around that as well. There's Mm -hmm. a number of companies that do that, but then they get stuck and they're like, well, our content's not getting used though. We're pumping it out. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I looked at is, is for the non-content marketer, we need a framework to think about those experiences that we build. And yeah. one of the things I, I love doing is asking a marketer, like I, I'll sometimes do a roundtable, table and I'll say like, tell me a really good campaign that you did, right? Like a really personalized campaign. And everyone's got one, one that they like so proud of, you know, it was loved, you know, people were packing boxes and we were sending out all these, you know, one-to-one and I'm like, okay, cool. If it went so well, how many more people did you do it for? Oh well, we only did it once, right? But it worked really well. (laughs) And and to me, that's where we need these frameworks. We need these Mm -hmm. frameworks to think about scale, right? Right. And that's that's you know we have a lot of customers who come to you guys at Quarry because you know they want to take their business model and they want to scale it, right? They want to be able to do this in a repeated way. The content experience framework is very much for that. And, And I think a lot of us we just want to create these beautiful personalized experiences. But the only way that we can get there is through some of the less sexy stuff up front, right? That's centralizing all that content, making sure we have a home for it. Uh, The second step is probably the least sexy, everyone skips over it, is tagging and auditing that content. But Mm -hmm. when you do that, then you can either manually do this at scale or we can start to leverage AI because Mm. we can match some of the intent behaviors that we're seeing out there to the way we're tagging our content. So then we start to be able to personalize truly at scale. And a great example of this, um, I call this one out in the books. I I think it's awesome. Although the numbers have only scaled further. A company called Snowflake, who- Yes, uh, right. I mean, this past week, I think they raised even more money. They're valued at like $12 billion now. And We've been fortunate to work with them for quite a number of years. And I remember in the early days, they wanted to deliver these personalized experiences. So they did it for 10 accounts. They did exactly what I'm talking about. But even at that point, it was a big undertaking, you know, mm-hmm. setting up all that infrastructure. But now the last time I spoke to them, they're delivering these one-to-one experiences for over 2000 accounts, wow. right? You know, yeah. on day one, 10 was, was wild for them, mm-hmm. but they were able to do it without tons and tons of people because mm-hmm. they put together a process they then put technology in place. We were fortunate to be that technology partner at Uberflip, mm-hmm. and and they've seen that, you know, those experiences scale and the, and the great result is that they see when they start to personalize that they see two times the deal size or sorry, two times the close rate and three times the deal size, wow. which is, which is amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it also makes sense with everything you and I have talked about, right? Mm-hmm. We use Spotify, we use Netflix versus iTunes anymore for downloading one-off episodes or going to right. Blockbuster, as crazy as that sounds, <laughs> uh, because it's personalized. It's, yeah. it's what I am expecting, and I'm being given that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's um, guys like the company you just mentioned. is It's Snowflake, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they are creating... you you might think they're in a category that already exists, but the fact that they're using machine learning and AI, they're actually creating a new category, which it'll be very difficult for other people to follow them into. So that initial investment of just doing 10, they probably lost their shirts on. Uh, But the fact that they now have a thousand, kaboom. Absolutely. And And the deal size and the close rate, that's what makes a CFO in a large company B2B or B2C, say, yeah, I can see investing in that because those are the numbers that they, they have to justify. And Absolutely. That's so cool. Um homeless content. And <laughs> Ann Hanley. I, I you know she's been involved with <laughs> you guys. She's just incredible. Yeah. And she has this ability to kind of label things that are important and um, homeless content, where like yeah. we- we've developed all this and then we let it wander off into the wilderness instead of, you know, reusing it or repurposing.
2: So the, the first time I, so the content experience framework is about two, three years old now. Uh, and when I first brought it to market was, was actually a connex. yeah. And, and I delivered it in a keynote, but I wanted to have some fun. And I asked some people who have some good relationships with like Ann Hanley, like Jay bear yeah. to each take one of the five steps of the framework and, and help me bring it to life, help mm. help dumb it down. Because sometimes I, I just get too into the weeds of things and <laughs> Anne gets up there and I I got no idea where she's going with this thing. And, and the idea of centralizing content, just to clarify, is, is the idea that don't send your audience to find content in places where they don't wanna find it when they're willing to come to your site, right? So right. like, as an example, a lot of us store our videos on YouTube, right? And YouTube's great, but we never want to send someone to YouTube because we know what happens when that panel comes out to the right. Our competitors or Dora the Explorer is there. Someone is there. And, and we're sent down this rabbit hole. So Anne went and and took, you know, my endless analogies. And she just she summed it up with this idea that, you know, content too often is homeless. You know, it's 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 living on the streets, it's it doesn't have a home. People forget about it, even though at one point it was, you know, hugely successful. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I thought I thought she nailed it. As she pretty much nails any narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Anne's Anne, to your point has been a great supporter. She her and Jay Bear and a, and a few other really really smart people I respect actually mm-hmm. invested in Uberflip early, so they've been right. great advocates
1: for us. And Lee Odin is another guy that. Uh... Puts a lot of time into thinking about uh, how people buy, and, and I know he's a tremendous supporter of uh, Uberflip as well. So
2: yeah, he, Lee. I mean, the team at Top Rank, and especially okay. Lee, as a leadership, uh, you know, mentor for them. It's 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 Lee. Lee has some really smart ways about actually going to market, right? Like mm-hmm. very practical. I, I've got a lot of respect for him.
1: Now, also in the in the book, John Miller. Uh, John Miller yeah. He wrote the foreword, and I love the fact that he brings up uh, Martha Rogers and and Don Peppers and the one-to-one relationship uh, idea that they first brought to the market back in probably the late 80s, early 90s. And then it kind of went away for a while because technology couldn't deliver uh, that one-to-one thing or one-to-one relationships. And you guys, your firm and, and some others are now making that possible. And uh, Miller, whose background is what, Marketo? Yeah, Um, so
2: John, I've known John for for a while now. I don't even mm -hmm. know how many years. And John, so I used to try and like, do anything to get 10 minutes of John's time, like buy him mm-hmm. coffee, buy him lunch, whatever the case. He's one of the founders of Marketo, which is a, a company that sold for 5 billion to yeah. Adobe, you know, only about a year and a bit ago. Right. Uh, and now is a CEO of Engageo where they're really helping marketers understand meaningful attribution points, again, mm. not that, you know, inflated attribution, but re- really understanding that path. So we've, I've got a lot of respect for John. He's been a great guy that I can call from time to time. So I was really excited when, you know, when he agreed to to write the forward to the book and, you know, he nailed it, right. Because John was, you know, early days, a big believer in content, Mm -hmm. but you know, I, I think he's also seen that adapt just as you brought up earlier HubSpot, which would have been a competitor Marketo. You know, they had to adapt what they meant by inbound and John's right. strategies that helped him grow Marketo. So, so brilliantly in the early days are very different strategies than he takes now right. with Engageo, his own go-to-market and the things that they're empowering from a technology piece. So mm-hmm. companies like Engageo, companies like us at Uberflip, Absolutely, it's 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 that tech piece to say, okay, great. Let's understand who the accounts are we want to go after. Mm-hmm. But the tricky part, and this is the part that I think a lot of people struggle with ABM, is they get as far as saying, well, these are the accounts that we should win, right? Because that's what ABM is all about. Which accounts should you win? But mm-hmm. then we don't get to the last part, which is, and how are we going to win them, right? right. And <laughs> and and that's the part where we have to actually start to engage them. Um, mm-hmm. As we unpack today, part of that is, you know, efficient use of channels, but the real gold is like I say, like, if you're going to do a paid ad, it can look customized left, right and center. You can put my logo in it. You can know my industry, but if I click it and I'm sent to your generic website, it's like, well, that was a letdown, right? right? You know, you built me up all the way here and -hmm. you delivered something here, right? Whereas, you know, that Snowflake example, what they're doing is they're sending ads in LinkedIn, they're sending email mm-hmm. signatures in the body, they're sending out direct mail plays, whatever they do. And it's, it's personalized. When you go to the destination that they, that they're trying to drive you to, mm-hmm. it's just as personalized in it's an engagement. And that to me is true ABM. That is like Laura Ramos, who's someone I've got tons of respect for it at, at, uh, Forcer, she's an analyst there. Mm-hmm. You know, she she wrote a paper called account based engagement, right? Yes. And and her point was it's not enough to say these are the accounts that we want, it's what accounts are we actually going to engage with and how will we engage them? Her analogy is like choreographing their dance
1: steps of mm-hmm. what path they're gonna take. Yes, I think it's right. just
2: a beautiful way to put it.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Okay, so Randy, you've now climbed a few stairs in the um, in the awareness and the, and the recognition and the acknowledgement of uh, Randy being a player, Randy being uh, an influencer. And a lot of that has to do of course, with being the co-founder of Uber flip enhanced by or amplified by your book F content marketing. What's next? What are you going to do? <laughs> what's, what's your encore, man? <laughs> <laughs> uh you, I you know what I, I gotta say
2: you sound more like me. I'm always like what's next? my wife is like is is this not enough for a bit like can we just <laughs> enjoy uh, yeah. um no i I think listen you know we're, it, this is your your classic uh, you know innovators curve where we're still mm. in the early stages right and right. you know yourself Alan, myself, people who are listening to this podcast, they are probably the early adopters, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I think we still have a very long way to go. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when I actually get to get out of our office and, and I talk, you know, to people in events or I get into some people's offices where they're trying to convince their, their management that it's time to change, there's still a long way to go. Right. But I think I think what's, what's more maybe exciting than ever is that we're now at a point where our consumer lives experience all these levels of personalization. We, mm-hmm. we unpacked a lot of them, right? Like, you know, Netflix, Spotify, but even just when I travel, like when I travel, my life just feels personalized around me. Right? <laughs> I walk into my hotel room. It says my name on the screen. Yep. You know, I get there. They know what I'm looking for. They know what food I drink. Usually yep. I check into the airline. They know me. It, it, that's the level of, that we're starting to see and and I think as a result it's a lot easier to resonate that this change is going to come a lot faster right. than than it has maybe the last 5 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know I think the next couple of years will be very different. It's interesting we're you know we are here in 2020, right? Um, um and I don't know if you remember this this was really just when I was getting started in this space. It was 2011. Uh and Coca-Cola did this campaign. It was called like, Coca-Cola 2020. Do you remember right. this thing? Yes. It, and and it's funny because I I thought about it like a month ago uh, as we hit 2020. That first time I wrote it down okay. as I'm running out a calendar date, and 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 I went back and I watched the video okay. and. And it's pretty cool to watch. Like people can search it on YouTube, just search Coca-Cola 2020. It's it's like a 20 minute or so video itself. But, uh, and, and it talks about how they were going to reinvent themselves. And they, they nail a lot of aspects about it, but you got to remember this was nine years ago. And mm-hmm. yeah. a lot has changed. And I, and I think that's the exciting thing is like, you see how much we've chipped away at that vision, but also how different things are in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right, sure. it's, you know, this is, you know, we, we never lived up to that 2015 of back to the future too, uh, yeah. but we also surpassed it in some other ways. Yeah. And yeah. and that's that's the exciting thing is we're seeing things change at such an exciting rate right now that yeah. I, I'm, I, I mean, back to your question, what's next? I'm honestly just excited to be alive for the ride.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Randy, I guess, I, I guess I've known you for, for five years and I don't believe for a minute that, if you're along for the ride, you're sitting in the back seat. That's not you. <laughs> you are up in the front seat or you have your hands on that wheel. And I got to tell you, I love and respect you for that. Uh, because... uh,
2: that that part my wife will agree on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you guys have three kids. How old are the kids? Uh, I got a 12-year-old son, Ethan, a
2: 10-year-old daughter, Lila, and an 8-year-old son, Ryan.
1: Oh, boy. Well, yeah, that's quite of fun. That's quite a group. Well, I'm going to let you go and uh, get back to changing the world and, and getting home to the three kids and your wife. And uh, it's been really great having you today. I think we've learned a lot. People have tuned into the podcast. This is um, Randy Frisch. He's an author. He's a co-founder of a tremendous um, marketing company. And uh, this guy is is somebody to pay attention to. So thank you, Randy. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you at a conference or down in your offices somewhere.
2: That's great. Thanks so much, Alan. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, honestly, an honor to be on this as well.
1: Oh, great. Thank you. Talk to you later.
0: As always, thanks for joining us this week on AQ's Blog and Grill. Make sure to visit our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter or hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this episode so that you never miss a show. And while you're at it, if you found value in today's episode or in any of our previous episodes, we'd love if you'd take a few seconds to give us a five-star review. Your reviews and five stars ensure that other people who need to hear stories like these have the chance to hear them. Or if you're not into rating, tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth spreads the love too and would definitely help us out. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next Monday with a brand new episode of AQ's Blog and Grill.
1: AQ's Blog and Grill.